Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to this week's podcast, The Battle of Nocnanus, fought in 1647 in North Cork. And it came about because of an email I received from a descendant, an officer who fought under Lord Inchiquin and lost his life at the battle. His name was Robert Travers. So, he had downloaded the recordings from the website, that's irishlifeandlore.com, and pointed out to us the importance of the oral tradition and keeping the story alive. And these recordings were indeed an oral account of the Battle of Nocnanus, recorded in 2002. It was indeed a bloody battle fought on one side by the Confederate forces led by General Taft and Alistair MacDonald and on the other side by the parliamentarians under Murrow O'Brien, Lord Inchiquin. There were Irish, English and Scottish. Irish and English and Scottish indeed fighting on both sides. Now that sounds impossible. The battle resulted in a crushing defeat for the Irish Confederates. This battle was certainly the bloodiest battle of our Confederate wars. Nocnanus translates to the Hill of the Fawns and is situated in North Cork between Mallow and Kenturk. And it's a wonderful, peaceful place today. But you would never imagine that in 1647 it staged one of the most deadliest battles. And they all fled, except MacDonald and his men. To find out more about what happened on that day, we talk to local people and who had the knowledge or the information handed down to them. And so we visit the hill and relive those moments of the Battle of Nocnanus. So let's get started. A solace country house. Well, it's really at the bottom of Nocnanus Hill. The late Hugh Burke lived in an old country house built in the early 1600s on the foothills of Nocnanus. Where uh, this important battle you refer to, which in point of fact was between uh, parliamentarians under Lord Inchiquin and the Confederate Army, in theory under General Taft, but being led by a very famous Scottish mercenary. Alistair MacDonald. Now, that came about because General Taff, who was married into the MacDonough family, chieftains, a very large clan, uh, 
had various rights in the district, but as a general war, he was not a good one. For that reason, he knew and asked this um, famous Scottish general, Alistair MacDonald, to fight his point. Now, there was a lot of differences between these two men. The battle was going on, it was being talked about for, or differences certainly were being talked about for quite a while. Uh, it finally transpired that on this fateful day, the 13th of November, 1647, the armies met as in those days, by agreement. They were very gentlemanly about it. Um, Alistair MacDonald led the Confederates, and he was on top of this very large hill, very steep on one side, gradient on the other, circular hill. The parliamentarians under Inchiquin were camped at the bottom of the hill, side of a river. They invited, again, invited um, MacDonald to come down and meet them on level ground. Well, of course, that was not on. So uh, the battle began. The Confederate troops charged down, charged the hill, and down into Intraquin's troops. Now, Intraquin had uh, a small army but he had superior weaponry um, Interquin being the famous general that he was knew a little about positioning and he had his army in three divisions one to his right the other to his left the centre facing the hill. This one met the brunt of the MacDonald's onslaught. I asked Hugh Burke to describe the area as it would have looked in 1647. The land was all forestry at the time. In fact, there were a number of houses. This house was here then, yes. Uh, I doubt if you could see it, but General Taff, who was... Uh, it is reputed that he was billeted here or around this district, which is only a matter of three fields from the actual battle. Uh, I doubt if you could see it at the time. It's also pointed out that um, a lot of the Confederates' weaponry was made from the timbers of this of the local forestry around. Desmond Sharp Bolster is deeply rooted in the area, and here he describes the politics as it would have been in the 1600s in Munster. Well, Cork as a whole uh, was was very strong for parliamentarian forces. Was ostensibly led in civil terms by uh, the Earl of Cork uh, Boyle, and his army uh, was led by Lord Inchiquin. It's only up here in the northwest corner of Cork that we had some major battles. One, Knocknanus, now presently under discussion, uh, and also Knockclashy, which is a little over towards Mill Street. But um, over in Kerry, there was considerable fomentation at the time uh, in that uh, Tralee and the Dingle Peninsula 
uh, were certainly uh, an area of unrest against the new forces of Parliament which were attempting to assert themselves at the time. If, however, you look further south in Cork and down around the city or over towards Yall, no, uh, these parliamentarian battles were not taking place there. Mm-hmm. And the McCarthy's were the overlords around here, weren't they? Well, the McCarthy's were the uh, Gaelic chieftains of this area, and they really ruled everything from Mallow to the Atlantic in Gaelic uh, terms. Now, uh, with the coming of the Normans, the Fitzgeralds had imposed themselves uh, over the McCarthy's, and the Normans were very good colonizers. And I say this to Hugh Burke because, of course, Burke is de Burgo and is of Norman extraction. Uh, they were good colonizers in that they married into and they created alliances with the Gaelic chieftains. But they superimposed themselves as a new layer of power on top of what had been princes in their own right because uh, McCarthy was known as the Prince of Duala. They eventually became the Earls of Muskerry. But um, they answered to no one until the Normans came and started establishing themselves in the late 1100s and the 1200s. And Fitzgerald, for example, who held sway from Connor, was awarded 520,000 acres by Henry II. That is, Henry II was awarding him land that didn't really belong to Henry II in the first place. Mm-hmm. But um, that was the English way at the time. And that is the power base that the Fitzgeralds were able to work from in order to establish their sway over the Gaelic chieftains in this area. We had three other uh, smaller clans in the area, O'Callaghan's along both sides of the Blackwater, O'Keefe's over toward Mill Street, McAuliffe's around Newmarket. And that would have been the order of the day here. Morris, I think now we will go across the fields and get right up on top of this hill where we have a very large view. We can see the whole area where the troops were were situated and try to give you a little feeling of actually what happened at the time. This actually is the townland of Asullus. Uh, Glen Lohan, Desmond's place is bounding us. The late Contarnt lived a short distance away from Nochnanus in the townsland of Bantir. He points out here the monument, which was erected on the roadside to commemorate the battle. And he gives his own views on what happened on that day. This particular uh, monument is put up to commemorate the final battle of the Great Civil War, 1641 to 1652. The first one was at Nochnanus on Saturday the 13th of November 1647 with the Battle of Nocknanos. At Nocknanos there was a long hill and the, the, the Irish army was, was in a, it lying along the side of the hill and um, Morrow O'Brien was uh, he had an army of about 4,500 men facing him but um, you see um, the Irish made it a tactical error because uh, they gave orders for their cavalry to, to charge and uh, O'Brien put up such a, wood, a, 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 a withering fire with his musketeers that the horses were, were, had to, to wheel around and they charged back to their own foot and caused utter confusion 
and they all fled, except MacDonald and his men. And he gave orders to charge down, and uh, uh, they, they had muskets, but they threw their muskets and they got their clear moors. And they waded into the English, and they routed them. And um, at one stage, it looked as if they had won the battle. But um, eventually, after uh, uh, fighting for a couple of hours, um, the MacDonald went too far afield, and his, his troops got kind of uh, scattered. And um, eventually, he came back into the battlefield, but he'd only about three or four hundred with him. And... Um, uh, Moro O'Brien had about 500 horses in reserve and he got him to charge MacDonald and MacDonald had no, no, no cavalry to cover his foot and therefore he had to surrender on terms. So now he was in restraint and when he was crossing a stream to call the chieftain's ford and um, his horse stooped to drink and there was about five fellows minding him and uh, when the horse stooped to drink it disclosed an opening underneath the corset of his armour and one of the guards drove his sword through his back and killed him. He was down at Chieftain's Ford here in front of us on the Owen Beg River uh, captive and one story has it that he leant forward to let his horse water and a trooper of Inchiquins named Samuel seeing Alistair's corslet open up at the back drove a pike into his back and that could really spoil your day and that did Alistair in completely and killed him. The other story that we have is that a major, a major Purden, whose family lived here until recently, came across this young coronet who had taken or had Alistair in charge and he was absolutely furious because Inchiquin wasn't offering quarter and he certainly wasn't offering quarter to Taff. He drew his sword and he slew him himself. And um, he was buried for three days under a tree in, in the corner of um, Ramahar kitchen garden. So the Alcalans of Clanmean uh, brought his body from the battlefield and buried it in Clanmean. And uh, some few years ago we brought a man from Scotland to, to unveil it and we unveiled the plaque and he's better there and that there is no doubt whatever about it but he is better there. He's known as MacElliström by some people and um, anyway uh, he was born in Colonsey in Scotland and um, he came to Ulster and um, the Earl of Ulster uh, sent him with an army to help Monroe in Scotland and um, he, had, he took an army of 1,600 men and they landed at the Sound of Islea and they took a castle, Mungari Castle and um, he was hoping to meet Monroe and another army but Monroe sent him word to meet him at Hull and when they met at Atoll, all he had was four men with him but they went with MacDonald's troops and they fought at the famous battle of Tippermore and they won it so he won it Tippermore Aldrin, Kilsight, and um, Aberdeen, and um, Inverlochy. And of course, you know, the Battle of Inverlochy was fought in the middle of winter, and he crossed the mountains with his army after snowing. But um, 
eventually he 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 left Monrose, the Earl of Monrose, and uh, he went to the western side of Scotland. And if finally he was defeated, he was outnumbered. But he came back to Ireland, and he was made Governor General of Clonmel. So he 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 came from Clonmel to Knocknanos with his red shanks, and um, he he would the, the Macdonalds would only fight on that side and on on um, on the right hand side. That was the. the that was the side of honour. Tell me, Khan, about his sword. His sword was supposed to have been well, seven he, foot long. He was a man of Herculean physique. And he was so strong that he had a special sword. And um, there was a ball of iron, ten pounds weight, that used to glide from the hilt to the point when he made a stroke. And uh, his sword was, was kept for years at Lord Castle. He was reputed to be a giant of nearly seven feet tall. He wielded a sword... Um, uh, some seven feet long and it was actually carried it was so big it was carried by a McGregor and that would have probably been a claymore which was rather like the British broadsword would be slightly curved and McGregor would have carried it on his back now the Scots normally fought in close contact with a broadsword uh, which was a one-handed sword and uh, was sharp on both sides but having put this to use Alistair would then look to McGregor and he would pull out this enormous weapon which I incidentally understand that in those days a piece of armament like that would bear the cost of the average house to us today so he was certainly a man of stature both in size and what he could wield and with this seven foot sword he was reputed to be able to decimate everything for 20 feet. Alistair had won uh, 15 or 20 battles for Montrose in Scotland, and he'd been highly successful as a military commander. His particular interest in that war was to drive the Campbells out of Macdonald lands, as the Campbells, uh, or the Campbell himself, later to become the Duke of Argyll, was in the ascendancy, uh, the Campbells had encroached on MacDonald lands and MacDonald wanted to push him out. After the Covenanters war was over and after his military successes there he wished to consolidate his successes and he came over to his uh, cousins, the Earls of Antrim, who were MacDonalds, not MacDonalds, in order to recruit more troops and his Earl of Antrim cousin said, well, Alistair, that's all very well, we would love to help you, but we have a perfectly good war going on over here, and we need your help. After that, we might then consider giving you a hand. Um, so having enlisted uh, Alistair uh, to come into the Irish side of things, Alistair fought his way down through Ireland and united with Lord Taft uh, here outside Canturk. It was in no way a political battle. It was just after the plantation of Ulster. Uh, in point of fact, there were Irish, English and Scottish. Irish and English and Scottish indeed fighting on both sides. Now that sounds impossible. But the fact was that the English were not welcome and never were in Ireland. At the plantation of Ulster, a lot of um, Scottish Presbyterians 
as you know, were brought into the country. They had a far greater affiliation with the Irish because Irish-speaking Gaelic, the Presbyterian Scottish people, also speaking Scottish Gaelic, they could understand one another. And indeed, a lot of them intermarried over the years in one thing and another. So, uh, General Taft's army was made up of Irish people, a number of English people that had, for one reason or another, but also a lot of Scottish people. While Interquin's army was a lot of English people and the Irish people, there was no such thing as uh, Ireland versus England. England, if you like, ruled Ireland at the time. But there wasn't anything like Ireland versus England, or um, it was just that Interquin brought his own army, he used the Irish, and of course he used the Scottish, which were supposed to be English. Uh, the basic underlying question was uh, how Ireland was going to relate to England. We had the English Civil War, which was basically the forces of Parliament attempting to gain supremacy over the monarchy, and that was extended to here. So as far as Irish were concerned, it was, were they going to refer to England through Parliament or through the monarch. And as we know, uh, Cromwell finally put his thumbprint on Ireland for 300 years in 1652. And I asked, were the conditions as bad as they were on the November day that I carried out this recording? It was worse, Morris. It's 13th of November, the history says there was snow. And by the time troops had positioned themselves and there were various invitations from one side to the other to meet them down the lower and all this sort of thing they went on very polite terms that way uh, it was actually two o'clock in the day when this battle began the troops on top of the hill the wind is blowing even here now where we are just so strong the troops on the hill were perished and frozen and waiting to do battle. They hired, the moment they got the word, they charged down, they charged straight into uh, Interquin's army, which I should say, we're actually on the circular hill, we can see it now, they charged the middle of it. To the north of us, going round the hill, one section, while it was with the main group, it was slightly to the left of the main group. Whereas another one, the other side of the circular hill was slightly to the right. But they charged into the middle. And this is where the folly began. Uh, and just to elaborate on that, Hugh, you remember that Alastair's Highland charges were always successful. And it was on this day that he started the battle by leading a Highland charge down into Inchiquin's crack troops. Now, Highland charge... You had one or two lines of musketmen, and these would be Highlanders, and they were battle-hardened troops. They were known as red shankers. Some people said because they wore red socks, but they didn't have any socks at all. Their feet were red from the cold, and they wore kilts. They'd be one or two lines of muskets, and they would march as close as they could to the enemy, down the hill, and fire. the first line would fire a volley and kneel, the second line would then fire a volley and they would throw away their muskets 
draw their broadswords and charge into the enemy while it was still reeling from the fusillade of shots it had just received. As they were charging, they would pull into little wedges and drive through the enemy troops. And they draw, drove down into the valley there before us and up the other side of the hill to Camp Field, which is up there next to Kilbrin, and that's where Inchiquin's materiel was. And they captured his materiel, and we understand that they were drinking wine and carrying on at the time and thinking that everything was going well. And Alistair, being the battle-hardened trooper that he was, he wanted to know how his left uh, flank was doing under the command of Lord Taff. Uh, he sent a messenger around. Don't forget this area in those days, instead of being all these beautiful fields, would have been heavily treed. So he couldn't see that far. And he sent a messenger around to find out what was going on on the left flank. And the messenger never returned. So he put together a little band of men and rode around to our left side down below the hill here and didn't realize that Inchiquin had routed Taff and his left flank. And Inchiquin was therefore able to pull troops together quickly and turn on this band of men. Well, in the skirmish that took place, it is said that MacDonald himself slew four men. And then he was taken captive. Now don't forget, the Irish Confederate Army was in full rout at this time. Now Alistair was caught and his troops therefore were leaderless. Uh, Inchiquin then turned his power on Alistair's troops and decimated them. A young cornet in Inchiquin's army had taken several captives and he had Alistair under his command. And they were down here at the river below us, the Owenbeg River, which we locals know as the Asolus River, but the technical name is the Owenbeg River. And what happened then is something of a mystery, but Alistair was murdered. So you, the slaughter that was going on was something fierce altogether. It was something fierce. Um, in the MacDonald's army, they marched down, or came down the hill at high speed, slaughtered all before them, and saw the camps ahead. They went straight into them. And of course, the sight of food, the sight of drink, the sight of everything, they just forgot that there might have been more people they were dead in front of them at the time Alistair MacDonald had gone around to see what was happening on his right flank where Taff was in charge uh, he routed Taff and was turned around with his own got his own troops that were with him and headed back towards the camp Alistair didn't realize, you see, that Inchiquin had put Taff into flight and therefore Inchiquin had troops to spare and was able to sort of turn on Alistair and his little band of men. And it was at that stage that that battle, a uh, small battle or skirmish, ensued. And um, 
Alastair, who I mentioned earlier was a giant of men, was reputed to have slain four men with his own hands. He was wielding his seven-foot sword at the time, but he was just totally overpowered. That left Alastair's troops totally leaderless, drinking away up at the camp, thinking that they had won the day. Inchiquin went on and now turned his attention to those troops of Alistair's that had taken his materiel and he just proceeded to slay them left, right and center. Uh, where we are at the moment, it's uh, troops in this pincer movement that were routed, having a short-lived celebration of Interquin's camp. And they were massacred here in the pincer movement, which we have already discussed. Now, we were told that 1,500 came out here, but it was mass slaughter, and these 1,500 men were laid out in two huge lines. We're looking at them here now inside in the field. The and they have survived all that time. Now, what happened? They just dug on four sides, one the soil from the middle and from each side. And these mounds are quite visible still. And tradition, be it what it is, never, nobody has ever touched those mounds. They're still exactly as they happened then. But yes, there were Irish, English and Scottish among the dead. Boat fighting for boat, boat, uh, in both sides. Boat fighting on both sides. And to this day, I would just wonder what for. This battle was certainly the bloodiest battle of our Confederate wars. It was also the bloodiest battle of the extended English Civil War. The English normally considered that Marston Moor was their bloodiest battle. But there were more people killed at Nuknanus than at Marston Moor. And it's very sad that it was neither a turning point nor a decisive battle because nothing happened afterwards. They were forces of parliament, all confederates, neither of them were able to consolidate their political uh, position. Inchiquin was not even paid for the battle. Uh, it is thought that the reason he wasn't paid by parliament was because of the excesses that were wreaked here, and that in actual fact, Parliament was probably embarrassed by the excesses of the Battle of Nuknanus. Uh, when Inchiquin made his official report to Parliament, he used figures of 3,000 dead. Some local uh, people, because there were onlookers here, estimated the figure as, as high as 5,000. But Inchiquin who was known as Murra, well, his family name was Murra O'Brien, and he was known as Murra of the Burnings. He, in, at the end of his report of all the technical details of what happened during that fateful day, he ends the report by saying, and the remainder of the day was taken with killing. The following morning, we came across 200 Confederate troopers in Kililki Wood and slew them just as if they were cattle. For a radius of five miles, they were dead and dying. And if you remember that you mentioned it had snowed here and there was snow on the ground, there was a fresh fall of snow the following morning. And you can imagine the dead and the dying 
for five miles in any given direction. There would be uh, forces of parliament going around making sure that the dying were dead and doing them in. And there would also be the scavengers. The scavengers would be getting boots and clothing and arms and anything that they could find. There would also be the wailing women, because in those days women followed their army and the women would be looking for their men and their spouses in vain because there was death throughout the area. And a pall hung over this area for a long time. As a matter of fact, there were between 1,500 and 2,000 went north. And the same thing, as we understand it, more or less happened then. They were followed by Inchiquinsworth. There was a continuation of the Pinster movement which came round Knocknanus Hill and got them between slightly above Kilbrain, I think roughly on the way to Buttevant. And they lay there for many years. We understand that about 1910, uh, excavations around that area, all these remains were removed from that area and taken to Ballybeg Abbey, which is just beside Buttevant. But whatever happened to Inchiquin afterwards? Well, broadly speaking, of course, the family thrived and uh, the Inchiquins alive and well at Dromoland. Um, however, the Inchiquin of the time uh, did switch sides six months after the Battle of Nuckninus. First of all, as I mentioned, he was not paid by Parliament. Now, what went on between he and Parliament and in negotiation, um, I do not really know. Uh, we feel uh, that uh, Parliament wished to play down the excesses that had taken place here at Nuckninus and just before that at the storming of Cashel. And uh, that is probably one reason why Nuckninus, in spite of being a victory for uh, forces of Parliament, has disappeared off into oblivion. Uh, Inchiquin um, stayed with the Confederates and of course Irish Confederacy, Irish Roman Catholicism and the Gaelic Chieftaincy, they were all really put to bed with the consolidation of power by Cromwell. And um, I understand that Murrah of the Burnings uh, had to retreat to France at that time for survival. It took, we believe, a whole generation to come back to anything normal after that. Indeed, from well over a couple of hundred years, we're told that there were people coming to that hill in Nocninus, digging, looking for artefacts, looking for little bits of memento. And uh, I think quite recently, when I say quite recently, in the last 25 years, uh, an old pike head was picked up on the hill, which was quite obviously from the battle. Do you feel deeply rooted to this place? <clears throat> Well, I feel it's my home. The solace is my home. I was born there and I'm living there now for practically 80 years. But um, yes, we're absolutely, it's part of our heritage. You've been listening to the voices of Hugh Burke, Desmond Sharp Bolster and Con Tarnt. Just before we finish, I've been very fortunate to have included in our audio archive two of the descendants of the protagonists who were part of that battle. Of course, we go back to Brian Brew, and um, I'm proud to say I'm a direct descendant of him. Gráinne O'Brien. And 
it, the, the history is, is a bit complicated in that uh, we skip from Brian Brew down to the time of Henry VIII uh, when the royal kings and princes went over and submitted to Henry VIII. And at that time, the uh, king of Thomond was a murrah and he submitted his titles to Henry VIII and in return he was created Earl of Thomond for life and Baron or Lord Inchiquin for his descendants. But because, of course, uh, there wasn't um, primogeniture in, in Ireland, but there was in England, Henry VIII said in future the titles must go through the eldest son. And so, uh, as Murrah was not the eldest son, his Thoman title then went to his elder brother's son. So immediately there were two uh, lines. There were the earls of Thomond and there were the barons or lords in Chiquin. Now, we are actually a, a junior branch of them, but both the Thomans and the Inchiquins died out and our branch at that time, which was in the, 18, in the 19th century, claimed the title of Inchiquin, which they were granted. Okay. Peter Tuff. Mama Castle near R.D., Okay, and you lived there for a while until you sold it about 20 years. No, I never lived in at Smarma. Um, I stayed there quite often and I went there quite often because my father's elder brother inherited it and he lived there with his wife um, and they had no children. So it wasn't until they, till Randall um, died really that it was entailed, it was entailed to a life and a life in being and so it was entailed to my father and he gave it up and it came down to me and then eventually I sold it because I really couldn't live there. It was, it's quite big, it's an old, um, well the castle part was built in 1200 they say and um when, and the family came over from North Wales, from the Taff Valley, with Strongbow, is the story. And uh, then the, the, the Queen Anne house was built round the castle. And the, 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 I'm sure it has a, a wonderful sense of history, but the, 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 the very um, feeling that your, your forebearers uh, you know, walked through, yeah. through the house, it was never... Um, um, attacked or damaged it, 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 it seemed to N no because um, in fact uh, because uh, we're, we're one of the few families that have managed to keep the lands and the religion because um, during the um, time of the when Catholics were having all their lands confiscated um, most, a lot of people um, became Protestants, but the Tafts were lucky because the Lansdowne family took over the property and um, actually gave it back, which in a lot of instances when people did that, they didn't get it back, but the Tafts did, so they were lucky they kept their religion and their property, which was unusual.
And so um, that's uh, how we managed to, to remain as Catholics, really. Gronio O'Brien and Peter Taff will feature in future podcasts. I'm Morris O'Keefe. I hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast and look forward to your company next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.